1: Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Matt Croger, and today I'm going to take you into the campaign that is Into the Rift, run by the Venerable Matthew James and Elliot Morrish of Rules Committee fame. And this is the international campaign utilising UB to play with the new rules that are in Helpy's Rift. It's important to note that any of the fluff that we talk about here is not necessarily canon. But what we're going to do is we're going to run through the fluff involved with their campaign to give people a feel of what the campaign's been all about and to give them a little bit of a feel about the rules as well, but also to showcase off just a few pieces of what the participants have been writing about their games. So after every game, our participants are encouraged to write battle reports that reflect how their battle went. And so a number of people have been doing that. I'm not reading all of them today, but just a small selection, but I'm also gonna introduce you to the various players of their campaign in terms of the groups. So strap yourself in and here we go. Doran plunged the owl's soaked rag into the tankard for the fifth time that morning, despite the pewter cup being as clean as it was ever likely to be. He was distracted. He always seemed distracted lately. From his usual spot behind the bar, he looked out at the distant peaks of the Helpy Mountains. He couldn't put his finger on what, but something was causing his bones to ache in a way that they hadn't since the war. For three weeks, Doran had watched battalions of soldiers trudge past the drunken pony on their way to the Helpy Peaks. There was nothing unusual in that in itself. Wait long enough in any part of Panathore and you had good odds of spotting the banners of one army or the other before breakfast. No. What troubled Doran was the state of the soldiers coming back the other way. Some bore the unmistakable signs of battle in the frozen peaks of the mountains. Frostbitten and bloodied these were, at least a familiar sight. But others looked as though they had been dragged through a blacksmith's forge. Their skin was burnt and cracked, with armour blackened by soot. Three days past, Doran had seen a band of mighty ogre hunters stalk past his window on their way to the mountain. The following day, He watched in surprise as one of the hunters tore past his tavern in full flight, a look of utter terror on their face. Then there were the new patrons in his bar. It wasn't uncommon for the bank's bailiffs to use the drunken pony as a resting spot while they visited the surrounding farms to remind the occupants of their debts. Dora always made sure he was paid on top and representatives from the family were always welcome here. Half of their specialty bottles stacked on the shelves behind him had been procured by a special arrangement with the family. More unusual were the newcomers to the region, immaculately dressed in matching uniforms that Doran didn't recognise. These strangers gave off an air of confident superiority, an illusion quickly shattered when their leader flinched and recoiled when Doran had extended a grubby hand in greeting. Doran suspected that these tra- strangers were not accustomed to spending much time in the outside world but they paid their tab and were polite enough. Besides, they seemed to know things, and Doran was no fool. He knew it was best to stay on the right side of people who knew too much. Strangest of all, perhaps, was the man in the corner hidden under a thick black cloak. When Doran had tried to start up a conversation with the man, he quickly regretted it. He raved to Doran for over an hour about how the new halfling semaphore masts were causing plague, Doran was a simple dwarf, but he knew crazy when he heard it. As he returned the tankard to the shelf above the bar for the fifth time, Doran looked out across the drunken pony with sombre eyes. Something was coming to the Halpi Mountains, and the ache in his bones told him that it wasn't good. The four institutions have marshaled their forces and have arrived at the edge of the Halpi Mountain Range, each set on staking their claim to the treasures below. But all is not as it seems, Advanced scouts report strange and ever-changing landscapes. Paths which lead to one location one day suddenly lead elsewhere the next. Ice-capped mountain passes give way to the fields of burning sulphur and ash, only to be replaced by luscious meadows of wildflowers or fields of decaying corpses the next. The fingertips of every wizard within 100 miles crackle with newfound energy. There are even tales of some who have never before displayed an aptitude for the arcane, summoning great bolts of lightning from their hands. It had been assumed that the great conflict would begin once the institutions reached the rift, but they are quickly learning that reaching the rift will not be as easy as first hoped. Each of the institutions have come to the same conclusion. What is needed first is a staging ground, a firm footing on reality from where further expeditions into the Halpi Mountains can be launched. The winners of this first skirmish will stake their claim to the most promising routes through the mountain. The losers? will have to content themselves with the paths less trodden. In their greed and their arrogance, the abyssal dwarves have dug too deep. In the bowels of Panathor they have exposed something ancient, something dangerous. There are certain events that simply cannot go unnoticed for long. As reality bends under the Halpy Mountains, the great institutions of Panathor stir slowly and inevitably turning their gaze towards the rift. Beneath these mountains lies the promise of knowledge, riches, influence and power for those strong enough to seize it. Now, to take part in this campaign... All the players are sorted into four groups, and these four groups re- represent various institutions in Panathor. These institutions are vying for the for the magical artifacts or whatever is pouring out of Helpy's Rift, as they are determined to control this for themselves. So, what we're going to go through now is introducing you to those four different factions. Uh, these are also available online for those that you haven't haven't seen them. Uh, they were produced and. On a youtube channel and i'm going to put the link in the notes uh, produced by matthew james in particular i think and potentially kyle presulinski and so i am just recounting the fluff that was narrated by them for those that maybe aren't interested in watching youtube okay Uh, welcome to the four factions the bank the history of the bank is clouded in mystery with historians disagreeing on exactly when the bank first came into being The internal record keepers of the bank probably know. Without exception, the bank holds detailed accounts of every transaction it has ever undertaken. Trace these back far enough and you would eventually reach the very first one. But like all of its secrets, the bank keeps the record of its origins firmly locked away. There are branches of the bank in every major city and port in Panathor, and there isn't a kingdom, warlord or coven that hasn't done business with them in some form. The bank is quick to offer credit to any venture that is likely to make a profit, but woe betide any who default on their debts. An army of bailiffs ensures that the balance is always paid in full, and the bank doesn't let a little thing like death get in the way of collecting on a debt. If you cannot pay off your dues in this life, they'll make certain that you do in the next. No one knows where the bank holds its headquarters, and the location of their vault is a secret that no one has ever lived to share. Who, or what, controls the bank is equally a mystery, although they must surely be the wealthiest individuals in all of Panathor. The Abyssal Dwarves are rumoured to have uncovered a great treasure under the Halpi Mountains, and if there is one thing the bank understands, it's treasure. The bank has little interest in the treasures for their own gain, their wealth is already unrivaled. What they cannot abide is the notion that the other factions of Panathor might gain wealth without the bank having a hand in it and so the bank has deployed an army of clerks, tellers and bailiffs. They have called in old debts and issued new loans in order to ensure that no other group profits from the Halpy's rift without them. They have bought themselves an army and they're sending it to war. The Collective Across every level of society, from the dingiest tavern to the greatest halls of power, the Collective have eyes watching. They whisper into the ears of kings and where they refuse to listen, they slip daggers into their hearts while they sleep, all in the pursuit of the agenda. Members identify themselves to each other through an elaborate series of nuanced gestures, clothing worn in a particular way and secret passphrases, all culminating in a glorious choreographed high five. Mastering this greeting is the first great task of any collective member, and until this is complete, they cannot advance onto the later circles of knowledge. Anyone could be a member of the collective, and the exact details of membership are shrouded in secrecy. It is not unheard of for someone to try and recruit a new member, only to discover that they have already been part of the collective for many years. The collective is split into a labyrinth of multi-leveled circles of knowledge and influence. There is no clear hierarchy and no codified set of rules. All knowledge is passed on by word of mouth, with each master placing their own slight variation on the truth. Only by progressing through this maze can the many secrets of the Collective be revealed to you. At the very top of the organisation sits the Council. They alone know the true purpose of the Collective. They alone set the agenda. Who sits on the Council is a closely guarded secret. In living memory no member of the Collective can remember any of their fellow members being elevated to the Council, or indeed even remember hearing from the Council directly. But no matter. They will carry on for the agenda must be pursued whatever it turns out to be members are rarely set tasks directly but instead look for instructions in the patterns they find in everyday life patterns that the non-collective miss blinded as they are by the propaganda of the mainstream hegemony elite the family in lands with little by the way of law and order the group provides protection to the average trader keeping them safe from raids by bandits and highwaymen. They provide this service either for a generous fee or for a favour to be named at a later date. In places where there are regimes that impose overbearing tariffs and restrictions on trade, the family often help traders to move their wares and circumvent restrictive trading rules, much to the chagrin of local authorities. Some small-minded groups see the family not as a legitimate business, but as crooks, smugglers and extortioners. Rumour has it that the reason none of the major nations of Panathor have been able to effectively eliminate the family is due to officials being met with unfortunate accidents, or bribed so that their more controversial activities are ignored. Little is known of the family's leadership, such is the length of the organisation's chain of command. The head of the family is only ever referred to as the boss, and those who know this character's real identity would never dare disclose it, for fear of repercussions. Those who work for the family come from all of Panathor's races, whether they are individuals looking to escape a life of poverty, people who owe the group a favour, or even those who are members just because they enjoy the life, all are loyal to a fault. Getting into the family is easy, but there is only one way to leave. Such is the group's influence and reach that it wouldn't surprise nobody if several of the most respected generals of the armies of Panathor were full-fledged members of the family. Such is the group's wealth that they have been known to hire mercenary armies to protect their interests. If all else fails, then they have the means to approach others with an offer they can't refuse. As with any opportunity to increase their wealth and influence, the news of the events at the Helpy Mountains is of a particular interest to the family. The boss is determined to ensure that the group takes their slice of the pie and is ordered that anyone who dares cross them is sent to sleep with the Noreticans. Alternative reprisals for Noreticans are available. The good news is, the boss trusts you to make sure that this operation goes nice and smoothly and you wouldn't dream of letting down the family, would you? The College Students at the Grand College of Magic devote their lives to the understanding of the magical forces that shape Panathor. An inclusive establishment with no political or religious bias, students of the Grand College are from all over Panathor. It is not uncommon to see a human and a goblin student eating together in the banquet hall and lessons are just as likely to be taught by a salamander professor as they are an elf. Inquisitive by nature, the students of the college do not just research matters of conjury and spellcasting in isolation. Just as interesting is their research into the influence magic has over political and economic matters of Panathor. One group of students, calling themselves the truth bringers, have been using magic to uncover the secrets of Panathor and make their findings known to as many denizens of the world as possible. The ruling classes have often been embarrassed by their findings, resulting in the college being placed in awkward situations. Upon hearing the news of a disturbance at the Halpy Mountains, this group of students has decided to investigate. Some of the students are keen to learn about the eruption of magical power and how this can be harnessed, while some of the students have suspicions that this could be a conspiracy by the ruling elites. The Truthbringers lack the funds to pay mercenaries to support their quest, but are smart enough to convince generals to side with them. If all else fails, those studying summoning or necromancy courses may use this as an opportunity to hone their craft. So for those of you that haven't seen the Helpies Rift book, it, contra- it contains various planes of magic and your battles can take place in those planes and each of those planes has special rules and suggestions for what scenarios you might play there as well as a channeling table which you roll on depending on the amount of spell levels you have uh, to gain a special rule that you, can, that you can essentially cast or give to a unit or your army for, the, for that turn only. So for round one of Into the Rift it was played in the material plane using the dominate scenario For this round, it was suggested that we play the game at 2,000 points. Now, I'm not going to read what uh, the rules of the Material Plane are verbatim from the book. So if you haven't got the book, it's also now available as an electronic download. But some of the different things that you have available to you in the Material Plane is Alchemist's Curse is back. Uh, So there's versions of that, and it essentially works similarly to how it did before. So it's more powerful against high high defence armies than not. There's an artifact that basically reflects damage onto a spellcaster. Interestingly in each of these planes what happens is that um, depending on your alignment you will have uh, monsters and mercenaries of the, pl- of the various planes that are available to you even though you may not normally be able to take at them and they are available to you as part of your core force not as allies meaning that you'd be able to you know, inspire them, cast spells on them with your main force. And so in the material plane that is human clansmen, salamander primes and steel off. Uh, there's also magical terrain in each of the planes. Uh, one of which uh, you will hear about is the tap house in the, in the fluff. And so that became a height 7 blocking terrain and units within 6 inches of that cannot be wavered. So that's an interesting thing and because you know it from deployment I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing um, to take into account for the whole of the game. And then an example from the channeling table of effects that you might get is, depending on what you roll, is, you may be able to give something plus one speed or give a unit plus five attacks. Uh, so there's a couple of little things that are really cool in there that can just change the game that aren't always predictable. So one of the things that some people say about Kings of War is it can become a bit too predictable. I think a lot of what we're seeing in Help is Rift makes it a little less predictable, which in some ways I think is a good thing. Obviously, these won't all necessarily make it into Kings of War standard edition for whatever you want to call it, but I think they're great for, for changing things up. And now I'm going to take you through a few examples of some of the fluff that's been written by players in the campaign. So sit back and enjoy listening to me read that out for you. And here we have some fluff from the Venerable Benson. Unlikely Bedfellows, an excerpt from the Journal of Bensom. The Rift, a fascinating mystery that demands further study. My fellow truth bringers and I have pledged to uncover its secrets, harness what energies we can, and protect any malign force from those of sinister intention. What we do know is that this monumental event is attracting many groups seeking to profit from it. To be able to compete with these groups is going to take both money and a strong arm, both of which we Truthbringers lack. Except maybe Truthbringer Jalborn. I swear that guy spends more time lifting anvils than he does in his studies, and I'm pretty sure he is of an affluent family. All is not lost though. We have the most important aspect one needs for such a venture. Unfathomable wit and cunning. We have decided to split our efforts to cover the most ground, with myself and one other moving in from the northwest in an attempt to establish a base of operations. That leaves the problem of acquiring a force who are who are able to enact this task. As mentioned before, our purses are light of coin. It is with a modicum of hesitance that I approached the two goblin wizards known within the college. All it took was the promise of powerful magics and potential plunder, and the whiz duo of Grabblesnot and Grimple were off. Seek your mates and let them know what's in store if they help out, was what I requested. And they delivered in full some five days later. Hordes of goblin sharp sticks flanked by their bigger brutish kindred, the Luggets. A goblin bard joined the throng as well as what seemed to be the leader of the group, riding one of those filthy flea bags. Word must have spread, because there was also a couple of hordes of trolls in their midst, as well as their bruiser of a commander. Not what I would have selected had I the choice in travelling companions, but as the saying goes, beggars cannot be choosers. Perhaps their size, and more probably their smell, will act as a deterrent from those seeking to muscle in on the proposed location of our camp. I never would have thought that I would get to examine the goblin machinations up so close, but here I am standing at a respectable distance from an entire mob of minces and a pair of those wonderfully crude flying contraptions. The cherry atop this unsavoury pie was the famed Wiz Grupp Longnail herself. I didn't think Grubblesnot or Grimple had any connections to Grupp. I suspect she is here less for the sport and more for self-gain. Not to worry, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Note to self, determine the exact relationship the wizards have with Ms Longnail. With an army at my command, as ragtag as it may be, we set forth towards the agreed-upon location. I must remember to write home. They'll never believe that I'm actually leaving the college grounds. It wasn't long before we heard the telltale sounds of another sizable force. Undoubted here for the same reasons we are. Probably much better equipped and definitely with more experience outdoors. And leading with troops, I guess. Hidden within the tree line, we wait until I have a visual on what, we, what it is we're facing. I figuratively pray to the Shining Ones that my goblin allies keep their calm and don't blow our cover, but Goblinkins seem to be a race that makes more noise while idle than they do on the march. A curious observation that will need further study. The Battle by the Bard's Taphouse We heard them well before anyone caught sight of them the beating of drums carried by the wind, their rhythm steady and constant. Next came the stomping of boots, a subtle rumble slightly out of time from the drum beats yet unexpectedly harmonised to the music, for lack of a a better word. My diminutive companions fell to a hush as the rumbling from across the field increased in volume. I'm not afraid to say in that very moment I may have involuntarily urinated just a little. Unlike some of the goblins whom I'm certain suffered from fear-induced defecation, I'm unsure if this was a reaction to the impending engagement, or if it was just the goblin way of things. I'm not ruling out it being the natural musk of trolls, either. I relayed my concerns of coordination to Grabblesnot and Grimple, while they reassured me that everything was fine. These fellas are as tough as they get, Grimple said. Yeah, the best we could find. Don't you worry none, Grabblesnot reinforced. The look of doubt the two wizards then exchanged to one another was not missed by me. Wit and cunning, wit and cunning, was the mantra I have taken to repeating whenever the feeling of abandoning this quest, quest reared its head. Clearing the tree line, our competitors revealed themselves. Orcs. The drum should have given that away, but in my defence, orcish societal studies was not a subject I've taken. I did note among the throng of jeering orcs and orklings was a small contingent of humans. A crowd of religious fanatics by my guess, and their handler, A man in resplendent armour atop a strong-looking steed. Perhaps he was there to observe, which means that the bank was behind this force. This is knowledge I can use. I relayed my observations to my two colleagues, and they in turn passed that to the leaders of their fighting forces. If there's one group that boils the blood of a goblin, it's the bank. Irreconcilable differences in money management, I believe. There was one moment I will never forget, and it was not from any action from any soldier. Nay, it was exactly that, the complete inaction from both sides as they observed their opponent sizing up one another. An unusual calm but with a tension in the air so thick you could taste it. Again, that may just be the trolls. An invisible catalyst spurred the war drums of the orcs into action. A cacophony of bellowing brutes, thunderous thumping of leather on soil and the booming of bass drums sent waves of sound to the core of my being. I thought I was going to be sick. Not so for my goblin friends. In fact, it had quite the opposite effect. In response to the movement of the orcish army, the goblins yelled in glee. It seemed they have been looking forward to a good scrap. Grupp herself turned to me and presented a cheeky wink and a sly smile before running off by the minces, followed by the bard. His music was truly awful, but it seemed to inspire those around him. The miraculous wingets took to the sky, circling nearby a small contingent of goblin luggets. Grimple and the big git on his mouth. The rest of my force took a steady march forward, the trolls staying close to the nearby tap house, which is apparently well known for its fire nails. My confidence grew at the sight of goblins working together, and quickly sank as their natural disposition for discourse emerged. One of the flying machines seemed to pop and bang its way across the sky, dropping fragments of wood and metal atop some of its nearby companions. This in turn raised the ire of the second machine, thinking it was a deliberate action, and returned fire, hurling as many insults as they were flinging physical projectiles. Shakily they both sputtered and convulsed across the field, the threat of mounted orc archers ahead retraining their focus. Missiles from both sides were released, the devastation of the explosive devices thrown by flying goblins inflicting more wounds than the orcish arrows. As such, it wasn't long before a troop of gore riders fled the field, leaving the remaining to give up the idea of ranged combat. One must remember that an orc with a bow and arrow is still an orc, a creature of immense strength for its size. The riders provide, proving more effective in close combat than at a distance. The goblins held that charge and responded in kind, eventually routing the mounted orcs with only a few casualties. A sigh of relief was all I could muster, as it was no time for celebration not even for small victories. On the other side of the field, frozen by the chill winds from the north and marching across a frozen lake, the goblin horde advanced cautiously, a difficult position to be sure, as the masses of orcs were steadily striding within range of an all-out charge. The minute orklings leading the pack, expendable troops to soak any assault the goblins may attempt. The orcish war drums began to beat out of time, perhaps out of excitement or perhaps because they are orcs. In either case, the clashing of resonating thumps produced a nauseating onslaught of sound, the effect of which brought many of their own warriors to their knees, the nearby human general feeling the effect as well. He could be seen clutching his ears and made a hasty retreat away from the literal instruments of chaos. A most interesting discovery for the use of sound and one that I must share with my fellow truth-bringers. Weaponizing sound could be the forefront of militaristic technology. The General led his fanatical followers across to fill the gap left by the routing orc cavalry, his contempt and frustration clearly visible even from my post some distance away. The ensuing scrum was so tight-knit with little room to manoeuvre, and when the General couldn't frighten the luggage into fleeing, turned and grounded a nearby passing flying machine. It has not been confirmed if this was his doing or if the poorly constructed vehicle was already crashing. The now unengaged goblins sallied forth and flattened the fanatic mob with ease. The bigot saw the opportunity to strike the general from behind while he was distracted, spooking the general's horse to such an extreme that it could not be calmed, leaving the field in terror. I will assume that the bank is going to have words with their representative. Maybe they'll write this one off as a bad investment, but I suspect they will will seek compensation. At this point I had lost track of time. It could have been hours or mere minutes. The engagement of Orc against Goblin, Troll against Orc, seemed to last both an eternity and an instant. Recounting the events of this battle is difficult, as the mass of soldiers intertwined through imprecise swings and chops. Goblin and orc both barely resembling trained soldiers and more like a tremendous street brawl. It was hard to distinguish who had the upper hand. That said, I was both surprised and impressed with the goblin ability to use the terrain to their advantage. Many an orc charge was made through bramble and barricade, over slippery ice fields or slowed by trees. The goblins held their ground, took the charge, retreated a short distance and readied their spears to receive a second impact. Tactically, this proved to be very effective in stalling the savage and ferocious ferocious orc advancement. Be it by design or by luck, the knock-on effect allowed the larger, more offensive goblin contingents to beat back their defenders and then wheel around to encircle the orc hordes. While one goblin horde was unable to weather a sustained tussle, They had held on long enough for the remainder of the army to unwrap and chase off the bulk of the orc warriors, leaving just their captain and mages behind. One warrior stood out of the pack and it was none other than the legendary Grupp Longnail. Let it be known that a single goblin with enchanted gloves stood toe to toe with the troll bruiser and chased it down. Let it be known that a single goblin making use of both her wit and cunning held back an entire horde of orcs. Let it be known that a single goblin goblin of humble background absolutely demolished an opposing mage with just her hands. It was this utter destruction of the poor orc wizard that broke the psyche of the enemy arch-shaman, who up until this point was bolstering his forces with strengthening magic. Grupp's status solidified her as a warrior of legend and who will have my utmost respect. If given the chance I would like to shake her hand and maybe catch a glimpse of those unique gloves she wears. Unfortunately, she had departed the battleground before I was to arrange a proper introduction. I can only assume whatever it was she was looking for wasn't there. Or maybe it was, and that I was too slow to spot it. So it is with great pleasure to report that I, as a distant observer and commissioner of this uncouth but effective army, have led the College to victory. The tap house and its immediate surrounds have been secured and a base of operations established. From advice from both Grapples. Gravelsnot snot and grimple, the goblin soldiers were given permission to pick the field clean of spoils and able to return home if they desired. As one victory has been placed under belt, being able to call upon them again should be a simple matter if we so choose. If there is one regret I have, it is that we did not employ a witness that could attest to my achievements on this day. Once I return home and recite my experiences, I believe they will just be dismissed as a flight of fancy. As such, I will persevere and continue down this dangerous and exciting path, but will endeavour to bring back evidence. This is just the beginning of an extraordinary adventure. I'm Elliot Morris, the accessible first of the Northern Kings and new RC member, and you're listening as a counter-charge. And next we have a piece from George K. Angerak shifted his position for the fifth time in as many minutes. This backwater drinking hole was not to his tastes, and the ancient wooden stool he was forced to perch on was not at all what his delicate backside was used to. He had tried asking the surly dwarf with the filthy dishrag for some sort of cushion, but the cushion he produced was so riddled with lice that he preferred numb buttocks to itchy ones. Still, he thought, you go where the bank sends you, and you collect from whoever the bank tells you to collect from. Today he was collecting from someone unusual, or was that something? People often thought that the bank was only interested in money, and they were right. What they didn't think about was what the bank was willing to pay to get out to get it. They wanted whatever was here in the Halpie Mountains, but so did everyone else. They couldn't just pay anyone to fight there, so they had him thinking outside the box. It was time. He stepped out into the yard and flinched as four chickens and a very angry goose, startled by his approach, clucked and hissed as they darted away. It was time to buy an army for the bank. Although unutterably vast and unfathomable in its reach, the bank was in its essence simple. It gathered wealth. Vast hordes of gold and precious items were hidden away in the vaults all over Panathor. What most people didn't realise was that if that was the only thing the bank dealt with, there would be vast numbers of people, creatures and monsters that the bank couldn't control. Without control there wasn't certainty, and without certainty wealth was fleeting. He sighed as he approached what seemed the right spot just outside the inn. He drew the dagger ever so carefully and prepared himself. The alcohol running through his veins made him stagger slightly but it also protected him from what was coming next, because who else but a drunk or a madman would do what he was about to. The dark pitted metal seemed to glean in the evening as he drew it downwards and felt rather than saw the stuff of reality begin to rip and tear. The creature that stepped through seemed to regard him with pure hunger. Shadows seemed to dance around it where there shouldn't have been any, and it began to reach forward. Quickly he raised the dagger and slurred, I'm the one. I bore brought you it paused as another creature stepped through the portal this one thinner taller and faster the depths of darkness where he felt their eyes should be regarded him he pointed across the valley where more troops were marching by the inn over there your payment is over there they both turned suddenly without warning all manner of creatures began to burst forth through the portal and skitter and crawl outwards into a sort of battle line their eruption had not gone unnoticed, and the other force began to turn. As he looked across, he realized he had made a big mistake. It wasn't an army of the living, feeling creatures, but an army of the dead. Would the Night Stalkers even be able to feed? Opposite, the shambling mass of skeletons and zombies formed up, and furthest away a vast mass of horsemen drew up. From amongst them a single warrior emerged and headed straight for the Night Stalkers. The Night Stalkers were drawn to it, and the Dream Hunter flew at him almost madly. He had to be a vampire to draw it out that way. The warrior went down under a mass of fiends as the dream hunter reached him at the same time and the shadow swallowed him whole. Spurred on to rescue their leader, the horsemen put on a burst of speed and slammed into the Nightstalker leader. Angerak cursed that it would be banished so soon after being summoned. Nearer his position by the inn, the Nightstalkers had pushed into the centre of the valley, but behind the mass of undead he could see larger troll-like creatures and animated vampire infantry and gleaming equipment. Led by a wizard in a Phidian dress. Could it be the famous Jarvis? Fiends, scarecrows, and butchers clashed with skeletons and undead as hunched creatures with a wide array of long claws passed Angorak's position. Then another group passed him, and he was looking at himself. A moment and they were past, the creature melding back into a formless shadow as it moved away. There was a keening wall of rage as the other Night Stalker leader flew over her troops and landed near Java's fellow necromancers as they chanted spells of binding. Even as it landed the large shambling shapes behind were turning, and cursed once more as the wailing was cut short. The skeletons and zombies were holding fast in the center. But at that moment the Reapers struck. Rotting limbs flew everywhere as their long claws ripped into the shambling creatures. Then the vampire infantry struck. Gleaming armour, glinting in the last rays of evening light, they charged out of a copse of trees straight into the path of the doppelgangers. Their long swords rose and fell, but for every amorphous shape they cut down, another would rise up and form itself into the living image of its opponent, only faster. Afterwards Angarak watched as the shadows shambled off towards the mountains, and knew that whatever the price, the bank would pay it for the contents of those mountains. I'm Kirsten Robinson, Queen of Resin at Mantic, and you're listening to Countercharge. Ed Herzig Snowbeam Moonflake looked up from the dried grass bracelet she was plaiting as they trudged along through the ice-bound valley. She pouted angrily to herself, thinking of how she should have been spending her summer on the Druid Festival circuit in the warm south, dancing, enjoying fireside mead and mushrooms in the evening glades, and getting to know those chiseled, cheekboned, sylvankin boys that she had been admiring from afar for several summers. If only she could only get them to take their minds off their bloody archery contest for long enough to pay her some attention, that is. Instead, the Green Lady had sent her on this wild goose chase to the far north to discover the truth about the rumours of a lava rift seeping magical energies into the atmosphere. Snowbeam thought it was probably just fake news. There was no sign of any hot, lava-filled rift anywhere here she rather wished there was as she wriggled her numb toes inside the lovely embroidered moccasins that were the only footwear she had thought to bring on the expedition she had just come of age and passed the initiation into the fellowship of the druids it had been touch and go when it looked like her surge spell was going to fail completely it had been touch and go when it looked like her surge spell was about to fail completely but she just about managed to shift the test shambler if only by an inch Thank the green lady that she had brought her conjurer's staff to the test. God, how she hated the shamblers. Twiggy, gnarly, dumb, slow-moving creatures. But here she was, far from home, stuck with no human company in the middle of a forest with them. Then there were the two giant tree herders. But they were like nightmare parents, looming over you. The wilt father, the grumpiest, grumbliest daddy anywhere. Somehow he always managed to put everyone around him in a vicious mood. Then there was the Herder Mother, with her nurturing radiance and patronising smile, as she showed Snowbeam how to surge Sambler's huge distances. She pretended it was part of her education, but really she knew she was just showing off, as Snowbeam well knew. She liked the Pegasus and Unicorns better, though the Unicorns were annoying in their own way, testing the new spell they had learned that they claimed would allow them to win any fight without even having to come into close combat. Alchemist's curse, they called it. To Snowbeam a spell with that name had no place in a nature army, but no one ever took any notice of what she thought. Snowbeam's sulking musings were suddenly cut short by a glint of sunlight on angel wings, as without warning the slow-moving grove was attacked from the sky by the flocks of Alohi. Snowbeam only had time to glimpse their beautiful impassive faces and to think to herself, surely they should be on the same side, not enemies, before running to cower under the eaves of an abandoned building they had been passing when they came under attack. In only a few minutes it was all over, as tree after tree crashed to the ground. The alchemist's curse that the unicorns had been boasting about fizzled ineffectually before they too were hunted down. When the outcome was no longer in doubt, Snowbeam summoned all her magical energies to send an avatar of herself into combat with the enemy wizard and slipped away into the frozen forest undetected while the enemy was distracted. It has been a bitter defeat, but at least now she could go home. And try and hook up with some of those elven boys she'd been dreaming about. I hope you enjoyed that little delve into the rift. I'll be back after round two with some more fluff for you. And until next time, keep countercharging.
0: Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on CounterCharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com on Twitter at countercharge fifteen.